Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Full Court Press has the latest news and opinions from men's and women's college basketball. Our hosts are John Fanta, who calls games all around the country for Fox Sports and others, and Kim Adams, an analyst for Fox and ESPN, and a former D1 baller who never saw a three-point opportunity she didn't like. If you don't believe me, check her Twitter page. Take it away, guys. Welcome to a fresh edition of Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams, everybody, on this Monday, August the 10th, 2020. And what a time it is right now in college sports. We're going to hit on the situation hitting the world of the NCAA and how it affects college basketball season with the one and only Rob Doster, a national reporter formerly of NBC Sports and now writing for The Rebound. We'll get to all that, plus the NBA draft. LaMelo Ball, just how good can he be? We'll talk with Rob about that and the most intriguing programs in the sport heading into 2020-21. Some that you might not think of as blue bloods, but that have truly emerged from the depth of the Big Ten to a loaded recruiting class coming to Knoxville. And is UCLA back? We're going to discuss that as well. Plus have some food fun. Wings, pork roll. If you're from Jersey, you have to know what I'm talking about there. And if you're not from Jersey, you're going to get educated. Rick Pitino even came up. We've got a ton, a ton of topics with Rob Doster on this edition of Full Court Press. He is a staple on press row across the world of college basketball. And now you can find his work at the brand new site, The Rebound, which I love that, uh, that name. It's perfect for Rob Dowster, who's joining us here on Full Court Press with Fanton Adams. And Rob, you've got the best background in the game as well. Hashtag hire Rob. There's no doubt we can all get behind that. But we start with the world of college sports right now. And before we get to how all this affects basketball, what is your reaction to what is happening in the world of college football at the moment? It kind of felt like this was going to be inevitable, right? Like at some point, uh, people actually had to start taking proactive measures and making proactive decisions to try to get us to a point where we could have a college football season. And nobody did that. It felt like everyone was just kind of waiting, kind of passing the blame. It, it really exposed the fact to me that there's no centralized, organized leadership within the NCAA ranks, whether that is conference commissioners uh, working with each other, whether that's Mark Emmert making decisions. Um, it just felt like there was no organized leadership and no organized plan to put together to try to save this season. And, and it got to the point where, you know, how can you, how can you justify if you're a university to me, like, I don't feel like the, the, the football season getting canceled is necessarily an indication of the safety of playing football. Um, I think it more, has more to do with the fact that we're talking about amateur student athletes, right? At the end of the day, these are amateur 
student athletes playing sports in an era where it may not be safe for them. And you have to be able to justify that, 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 that they're not getting paid for, right? You have to be able to justify the fact that they don't have any kind of representation or any kind of say in the decisions that are being made here. So to me, the reason this stuff is getting shut down is one, because of amateurism bylaws that have not changed over the course of the past five years or so. And two, because of the liability that these schools would face should some should the worst happen, right? Like we've seen studies recently about the damage that happens to the hearts of people that have recovered from uh, from after they tested positive for coronavirus. And uh, I don't know if that's necessarily something that we need to be worried about. I don't even know if doctors know at this point, but it's something they're concerned about. It's, it's interesting, John, and I'm sure that you feel the same way uh, about this as I do, but the people that know the least seem to have the, the strongest opinions, right? They seem to be the ones that are the loudest, where the people that you want to trust and the smartest people and the doctors in the room and the Anthony Fauci's of the world, the ones that you want to listen to all kind of say, we don't really have answers at this point because this is a new virus that we're dealing with. So if you're a president of a university and you understand that athletics, even college football, as big of a business as it is, is just a drop in the bucket of the money that you make at your university. Think about this. I, I, I did the math. There are 68,000 students, more than 68,000 students that were at Ohio State last year, both graduate students and uh, undergrads from in-state and out-of-state. And if you put all of the numbers together and do all the math, which I did, I busted out my calculator and I did all these calculations, they brought in $1.156 billion of tuition money last year. The, 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 what they're making off of like big 10 deals and, and bringing fans into stadiums and all of that. Like it's a drop in the bucket. College athletics is a side hustle for these universities at the end of the day. So they're not going to risk all of this money and put all of this stuff on the line and, and deal with all of this liability for something where it's not necessarily going to be changing the bottom line. So it just, to me, it came down to liability. It came down to amateurism and it came down to financials. And that seems like what, uh, is kind of driving this decision. It's felt like for a while that the inevitable was just getting delayed. And the whole thought process of hope for a miracle, hope for something to change with this pandemic, and, and maybe there's a late opening or something can happen. But Rob, what stands out to me about all this is last week, the NCAA puts out recommendations to the three divisions and puts in the hands of those divisions. It bears noting here, divisions two and divisions three, of course, came right out and said, we're not, we're not going forward with this. They don't make anything close to what Division I power conference football is making. Nobody's denying that. By the same token, the NCAA, I, I actually thought, made sense last week in putting the recommendations they did out there and saying to these conferences, we are putting it in your hands because, frankly, you're bringing in that amount of revenue. And, oh, by the way, Mark Emmert has no control over FBS football. He has no control over that. So I, I don't think that this is a case where, well, the NCAA really blew this. I, I don't think it's that. I do think there is that idea that college football, just like college basketball, could really use a commissioner who can find some sort of middle ground of uniformity. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit different for basketball, too. And, and this is a point that I've been trying to make to people in that it is much more financially viable and much more realistic to be able to create a bubble where you can play basketball at the college level, right? Like 
you have to get over this whole idea that, that these players are going to be amateurs. And if the NCAA is going to allow this and these conferences are going to allow this, they have to understand that all of it, that, that what it means is they're going to spend a whole bunch of money fighting the whatever legal cases come out of this because they are basically admitting that these players are no longer amateurs by allowing them to play and putting them in bubbles and taking them off of campus and doing all of that, right? You have to be able to get past that. And if you can get past that, you can understand, like, it is very viable. Like, look, how many, how many people are associated with a college football program? Let's just say this is probably conservative, like 150 or so, right? Yeah. We can include all the scholarship players, all of the walk-ons, all of the coaches, all of the support staff, all of the trainers, everybody that travels with the program. There's, let's just say 150 because it's easier to do the math that way. And let's say that you have a 12-team conference, right? 12 teams um, in your football league. If you are going to create a bubble, you need to be able to house like – 32,000 people. Yeah, yeah, it'll be. And then, but you also got to remember, you got to get officials in there. You got to get the people that are going to be in there to actually run the, the broadcast. You have to get the people in there that are actually going to be making the food and, and, and like cleaning the rooms and doing all of the other stuff for the, the, the people that you're putting in the bubble. So you're talking about housing like 3,500 people in a facility, right? And that has, that, that doesn't even include the fact that you need what, seven football fields? If you have, if you have, 12 teams, 12 football teams in a bubble. You need to be able to play six games a week to be able to get this done in the quickest way, in the quickest way that you possibly can, right? How many facilities are in the United States? I'm legitimately asking if you know of any. How many facilities are there that can handle six high major football games in one weekend while also housing 3,500 people? It just seems like that's not something that's possible. Now, with basketball, you really only need one court. You don't need more than that. You, it would probably be helpful to have like two, so you can have two games going on at the same time and you can have more uh, prime time content, but it's very doable to be able to play like five or six basketball games in a day on one court, right? The, bat, the, the traveling parties for basketball teams can be, I don't know, like 25, 30 people, right? You can make it happen where you only have like 300 or 400 people staying in a resort that has like one basketball court that's usable. And if you do all of that, you can create these bubbles. Now, it's going to be expensive. And like I said, you're going to have to accept the fact that you're basically torpedoing this idea that these are just student athletes and these are not amateurs and this is not professional sports. And you're doing this for the love of the game and not for the money that it generates for the athletic department. You got to blow all that up. But if you do, bubbles are doable. Like the, the NBA did it. The MLS did it. It's, it's something that is very possible. So if you start planning right now, if you are Dan Gavin and you get on the phone with all of these conference commissioners and you are Mark Emmer and you say the NCAA has X amount of dollars that we can support to make sure that conferences like the SWAC or the Southland or, you know, the, the, the MAC or whatever it is, the smaller leagues that don't have those TV deals and that TV revenue, if you get all of these people working together to make this happen, we can have a college basketball season. We can have an NCAA tournament. But you got to be able to get past the fact that they're amateurs. And the other part of it, which I feel like it's just gone so under discussed, the safest place to be is in a bubble. You know where the worst place to be is? In the middle of a pandemic on a college campus with the students back. And that is why Seton Hall head coach Kevin Willard suggested to begin with in the sport, if they are going to play on campuses, utilize the time when the students are off campus, when they leave before Thanksgiving, you've got a good month there before Christmas, before that mandatory time. After Christmas, you've got two or three weeks, sometimes four weeks, before your campus is really revving back up with classes. And let's look at, at this, Rob, and 
Rob Doster, our guest here on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. He writes for The Rebound. That's where you can find him. Rob, we cover these teams, and in season, you, you know the fact. The class load is so much less than in the summer, than during those downtimes when they fill up those schedules, they knock out classes. They're taking three, maybe four classes at a time in season. It is much more manageable. There's academic personnel that are traveling with them. If these kids are taking virtual classes to begin with, what is the difference between them taking them inside their dorm room where they're exposed to all different kinds of things as opposed to some sort of bubble setup at a hotel where their academic advisor can still be hands-on with them? The answer in my mind is there is, there is no difference. In fact, it's more beneficial for them to be inside that bubble. Yeah, and because, like you mentioned, not only are they getting the access to the academic advisors, but they're also in a place where they – like, that's the safest place you they're can safe. be in a bubble, right? Like, if you go and you look at what the NBA is doing right now, like, these guys are able to go out and have fun because they know that there's no one around them that, that is dealing with, uh, with, with the virus. They're, like, if you're positive in the bubble, like, you're locked in your room. You're quarantined. You can't go out and see other people. So, uh, and, and honestly, like, I've heard that those guys, the NBA guys, are just loving it because like LeBron this is the only time in the world ever in his entire life for the rest of his life that he's going to be able to go walk around outside and not get completely mobbed he's, he's probably loving the pandemic he's probably loving the bubble life at this point well uh, and the way that we're watching these guys play would would show that how much they're loving it because I think the level of play has been really really outstanding for not even being in the postseason yet I just look at this situation here and I don't understand. There's all kinds of takes on Twitter here. And based on uh, CBS reporter Dennis Dodd tonight, he said all five of the Power Five conferences, they're all in different directions right now. We've seen all different kinds of reports. It's been a, a tidal wave of stuff. What I'll say is college football media have said this is a sign for college basketball that they've got to get you know what together. The two really, in my mind, are, are not comparable when you talk about the numbers here, when you talk about the fact that you need a court, you need a ball, and you need two hoops. Now, the question's going to be is, can these leagues make it work financially? Because running something like this is going to be expensive. What are your thoughts on that? They're going to need help from the NCAA, but the NCAA has an enormous financial incentive to make this happen. I hope people realize that the NCAA's operating budget, 75% of that comes at least, it might be even be 80%. More than three quarters of their operating budget comes from the deal that they have with CBS and Turner for the broadcast rights for the NCAA tournament. Yeah. That got slashed to like a quarter of what it should have been last year when the tournament was canceled. This year, if you don't have the tournament, I don't know how the NCAA is going to be able to operate. Like how, if you don't have all that money coming in, how are you going to exist? So the NCAA has a massive, 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 massive financial incentive to make this happen. And the best way to make it happen is to shell out a little bit of money and help like the whack make sure that they can get a place somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Even if it's like going out and just buying two motel sixes with a high school gym down the street. Right. And just kicking everybody out and putting up barricades and making sure no one from from outside this little whatever, wherever you have it, like you can make it work. It's possible to make it work. It's going to cost money. The NCAA has an incentive to spend money. You can make this work. And, and part of the reason why I'm saying like college basketball 
administrators like need to get it together is because you can't just throw this together last minute. Like it takes a lot of planning. I, you know, and, and I don't mean to cut you off, Anna, but like the reason why last year it was completely like un, un, unthinkable to actually go out and, and postpone the NCAA tournament. You remember that when they canceled it, everyone was like, well, why don't you just postpone it? Why don't you just push, push it back? Because the logistics of putting together a tournament that involves, what is it? It ends up being, I think, 15 different cities, 64 games, um, 68 teams. The logistics of putting that together with the flights and getting the gyms and paying the rents that you have to pay and, and all of that kind of stuff is a nightmare. It takes literally years and years and years and years for them to plan. Like there's a reason why we're looking in the future and saying like, we know where the tournament's going to be played in 2024 It's to make sure we have the infrastructure and the groundwork in place. And you think you're going to throw together bubbles in a month to be able to run all of these, these tournaments and all of these leagues and get all of these teams playing to make sure that you have 75% of your operating budget coming in. You got to start doing it. Like literally you probably should have started doing it two months ago. If you really want to make it happen. It was reported last week. It was reported last week that the Big East and Big Ten are looking into these scenarios. They're trying to exhaust any and all possibilities. It is August. That's being proactive. But for the NCAA collectively, there's going to have to be some guidance here. And like you said, they benefit off that guidance. They benefit by putting money down. That money's going to come back and then some by having a game on CBS, a game on TBS, a game on TNT, and a game on True TV. People might joke, I can't find True TV on my TV. The amount of money that that game is caught, that that game is making uh, for the NCAA is astronomical, and that is their money maker. And the benefits by putting money up front and by doing everything at all costs to get NCAA basketball on the table this upcoming season, those outweigh uh, not doing it at all. Because if you don't do it at all, with no college football this fall, and if we don't have it in the spring, I hope we do. But even with it without it this fall, with no bowl season, the NCAA, as we know it, will change. It will be changed. If they don't have a college basketball season, not only will it change, but it might as well not even go by the same name because all those Olympic sports are going to be affected. They've already been affected. You're getting to a point where we'll see program cuts, if not scholarship money reduced. And those sports, I think, could go to a club-like model with no scholarship dollars because those are the types of cuts that you could see universities end up having to face. There has got to be a college basketball season for the NCAA to stay alive. Yeah, and I think this really just drives home the point. Like, we're talking about how you have to have all of these teams and all of these kids play a sport that they're not getting paid for to be able to fund everything else. Like, how is that not a professional endeavor, right? Like, how does that not make you a pro? And that, like, they're, like that, that's the rub, right? Like, how can you do this and, and make it so clear that the only reason these kids are playing is because you need the money that they generate, right? You need them to create the content for you to sell, but you're not paying them for the content that they're creating. It's, it's a catch-22, but it's something that the NCAA is going to have to reckon with if they actually want this to happen. What do you make of players unionizing? I don't know if it's actually going to work if they're not labeled as employees, but I love the effort. You know, I, I, I think that the biggest issue that we've had in terms of changing amateurism and changing some of these bylaws and, and changing some of the rules that are in place that are, are kind of anti-athletes, so to speak, right? It all has to do with the fact that the players cannot get to the negotiating table. They have no say in the matter. The reason why 
there's an NBA players union so they can negotiate with the owners and you can come to a decision where all of the athletes have a say in the deal. Same with the NFL players union, same with the G League players union. Like the reason you have a union is so that the workers have power. There's no union in college athletics. So the workers have no power. That's part of the reason why they're not getting paid. But since they're not employees, then they cannot be named. Uh, you can't make a union out of a bunch of guys that are just students and are not employed. It's just, you're I mean, you, the logic of, of all of this you just run yourself in circles and tie yourself in knots when I think anybody with any kind of like sanity whatsoever would say if we are going to start a college sports model understanding that like one three-week tournament creates a billion dollars worth of revenue for the league we can say oh yeah you know what that's probably a professional athletic Crazy times, unprecedented times, and uh, seemingly every day things seem to get crazier. Let's have some actual fun talking about the sport that we yeah. love to cover yeah. in college yeah. basketball. Turn the page to 2020-21. For it's me... Hard to say, right? Can we talk about that for a second? 2020-21? Yeah, well, let's move to 2021 as quickly as we possibly can. In my mind, Rob, I look at, at the country and I think about the Big Ten heading into this upcoming season I would say that they're the best conference and I would say in terms of a, an intriguing storyline I'm the most intrigued uh, by Tennessee and the incoming class they have coming in which team intrigues you the most in this sport heading into the coming season well if we're not talking about like the, the I think there's a big three at the top of the sport it's sure Nova it's Baylor and it's Gonzaga. And if you don't have Villanova, Baylor, or Gonzaga in your top three, if you do a preseason top 25, then I want whatever you're smoking. I need a little bit of that. I'm still quarantined here. Um, that I, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head with Tennessee. That's very interesting to me. I think that uh, getting back Eves Ponds is going to let them be able to play like this kind of small ball lineup. And, and you mentioned the, the incoming class they have coming in. Uh, Keon Johnson is a freshman. I think he was a four-star recruit, but everyone around that program right now is just raving about how good he's going to end up being. I think he's going to surprise a lot of people. I had Tennessee in the top 10. If Kentucky does not get Olivier Saar eligible, I do think Tennessee is the clear-cut favorite uh, to win the SEC regular season title, should there be an SEC regular season. I'm also really curious to see what happens with Illinois. Uh, you know, they were, I think, the biggest surprise of the whole early entry period was that I would assume who ended up coming back to school. Now, uh, most people thought during the season that he was probably gone, right? And he's one of these kids that, like, keeps everything close to the vest. And uh, during the whole process, like, the, his coaching staff was not just sitting there wearing him out, like, hey, we want you back, blah, 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 all this, that, and the third. Like, they understood that he needed time to make a decision. And he ended up making, I think, probably the right decision because at the very least – he has the security of knowing he's going to get a scholarship, he's going to have a place to stay, and he's going to be able to have a meal plan, and he's going to get a stipend heading into to next season. Whereas he's the kind of player where, like, NBA teams would want to take a risk on him because he's basically a jump shot away from being a really, really good pro. But how many guys are a jump shot away from being a really, really good pro? You know, you, you're not going to use a guaranteed contract on a guy like that. He was, in my mind, he's like the quintessential get-a-camp guarantee work your way to a two-way kind of a deal kind of a player. But if we don't know what the G League looks like, we don't know what the European markets are going to look like, it's risky to do that. You might find yourself in a place where you don't have a job because we don't know what the job market for professional basketball players is going to look like heading into the 2020-21 the season. Um, so getting him back and getting Kobe Coburn back, uh, to me, that makes Illinois a top 10 team, maybe a top 18 
Um, I personally think they're probably the favorite to win the Big Ten. I know everybody loves Iowa. I have questions about uh, how well Iowa's going to guard, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin. Like They're probably the top three teams um, in that conversation. But I think I would say that Illinois is the favorite. I already fired a, at a 50-1 to 1, um, bet on them to win the national title, should there be a national title. And, you know, I just – I love Desumu, man. He, he's the best big shot maker in the sport. And when Illinois is good, like that, that's just one of those fan bases that makes college basketball better when they are good. So um, I'm very interested to see what happens out in Champaign. I'll tell you what, I've never been out to the State Farm Center. That place looks like it can absolutely rock when the Fighting Illini are going. And that's going to be very exciting to see. I'll tell you what, elsewhere in the Big Ten, after those three teams we just talked about, how about the Rutgers Scarlet Knights and what they've been able to do under Steve Peichel? Yeah, that's my home state, man. I'm living in New Jersey now. So um, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens uh, with Rutgers, mostly because it feels like every year that, that he's in Piscataway, Steve Peichel gets that team better and better and better. So um, knowing that they won't, but they end up winning 20 games last year and they would have made the tournament had the tournament actually happened. Uh, to me, that just kind of says like, okay, they've arrived. Now they got a bunch of pieces coming back um, and they're getting the uh, Cliff Amarui. I'm never going to pronounce his name, right? I'm going to get it wrong. Every you time. actually they, came pretty close there. Cliff Amarui. Yeah. There you go. See, I knew you would know it, Fanta. Um, yeah. Like getting him eligible kind of fills a role and, and fills a need that they had in their front line. Uh, but I mean, there's just, they go like nine deep man, and, and, and they won all of those games already. The rack, when Rutgers is good, it's just a nightmare to play because you got, you got all these Jersey kids, uh, you, you know, in there getting drunk and yelling at you. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I say that we're not going to have fans in college basketball this season, so we're going to see what that home court is really like. But um, it's I, I'm, I'm very interested to see how they kind of progress. And, and honestly, like as somebody that is living in the state of New Jersey, I really like that both Seton Hall and Rutgers have kind of turned things around and they're good because now like if that becomes an actual rivalry, and like a and, and not just one like between the two fan bases, but one with like national relevance. That's awesome for me, man. That's forty-five minutes up the road. That's a home game for me. I love it. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, now for me, living in Hoboken, just just a fantastic thing. You could get college basketball and you get a pretty damn good meal out of the Garden State Hardwood Classic between Seton Hall and Rutgers. You could start with a breakfast sandwich and end with chicken parmesan. What rivalry is better than that? I mean, it, do, it doesn't get better than that. Let's go to the opposite coast. Wait, I have, I have a question for you. Okay. Now that you're living in Jersey, is it pork roll or is it Taylor ham? It's pork roll. You think it's pork roll? Okay. Yeah, and I keep mine crispy. <laughs> there you go, man. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the opposite I'm coast. I'm put you on the spot. I know you're not from Jersey. I thought I was going to put you on the spot. And what I do you do? I, I, I call it both, man. Like, I'm not from here, so um, whatever someone wants to call it. Like, I have no, I have no dog in the fight. Um, but I, I it, all, all I know is that when you when you heat it up, right? You take a fried egg, and you put a little cheese on the fried egg, and you heat up the the pork roll or the Taylor ham or whatever it is, and you put it on top of that, and then you put it on like an English muffin, and you, you get a little ketchup on the side, maybe a little hot sauce. Like that is the best breakfast sandwich that you're gonna get. I have a confession to make. Oh, oh boy. I don't like eggs. Oh, I, I mean, I I get it, I get it. It's acceptable. <laughs> It's not like not liking pizza or something like that. So. No, you know what? You know what? I don't understand. We had this debate on Twitter with other media. You and I both like flats wings. Yeah. Which I love flats over regular wings. I don't understand the people that like, look, it's not that I don't like drummies because they're awesome. No. 
But if you gave me, if you said I can have, that you put two wings in front of me and I can only eat one of them. I'm on the flat. flat. Like it's, it's easier to eat. Yeah. I, well, see, the thing is, I do it with the, the, the one biter where you like, you break the top and you like that. So that's how it just, it's easier for me to do that. Like, I, I feel like it's not as messy when I eat it that way. I don't, maybe I'm just weird. We started talking about the NCAA and unionizing and all these important topics. And now we're talking about chicken wings, but that's what you get here when, when you got Rob Doster and John Fanson talking college basketball. I want to go the opposite coast here. Okay. Is UCLA back? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm, I'm really, really high on UCLA this year. Uh, I know that they're not going to have Dacian Knicks coming in. They're not going to have that five-star point guard. Uh, but I really like Tiger Campbell in the sense that he's a guy that can uh, make things happen for other people. You know, he, he's, he's kind of limited in what he is as a scorer. You know, I feel like every game I watched UCLA play last year, uh, Tiger Campbell was like 0 for 10 from the field. Maybe it happened just a couple of times, but like that's what my main memory is. Like, oh man, this dude cannot shoot. Uh, But he's a really good passer. He's a really good facilitator. Chris Smith is back. I think he's a guy that is is one of these like breakout candidates, right? I feel like he's going to become a Nashville star. What people don't realize, Chris Smith is about to be a senior. He is younger than Precious Achua who yeah. is a one-and-done freshman this year, and Cassius Stanley, who was a one-and-done freshman this year. I think he turns – I might be wrong on this, but I'm, I'm like 95% sure he turns 21 on uh, Christmas Eve. So he's young. He's young for his age. He, he's, he's obviously talented enough uh, if he's scoring 14 points a game um, in the Pac-12. I think he's probably – like, I'm going to pick him as Pac-12 preseason player of the year, uh, mostly because I think that UCLA is going to win. You know, if I thought that Arizona State was going to win, I'd go with Brandon Martin. If I thought Oregon was going to win, I'd go with uh, Chris Duarte or Real, Will Richardson or one of those two guys. Uh, but I think that, that UCLA is going to end up getting it done. They got another kid, a sophomore, named Jaime Jaquez. Jaime Jaquez. Jamie, Jamie ja- I don't know how. Yeah, Jaquez. Jaquez, there you go. Um, he, I think he's going to be a kid that ends up being really, really good. Now, maybe this won't be the year for him to kind of take that big step and, and to like an all Pac-12 first team Pac-12 kind of a player because uh, him and Chris Smith kind of like play the same spot in, in, in a lineup and do the same things. Um, so I do think that Chris Smith is going to take some of the shots. But when you got those two guys on the wings and you got a point guard like Tiger Campbell, who is plenty happy to go out there and distribute, and you got some big guys like Cody Riley and Jalen Hill, and you got a coach in Mick Cronin who has proven like just to win. That's all he does is win. Like we had all these questions about what UCLA was going to be. And they ended up going what 12 and six in the past 12 last year and Mick Cronin's first year. Oh, Mick Cronin cannot win in, in LA. Kids don't want to play his style. They don't want to play defense. They don't want to be tough, blah, blah, blah. He's never going to get it done. Well, he started out the season nine and eight and he ended up uh, finishing. I think they were within a game of first place. Like if they won on the last day of the regular season, they would have won a share of the Pac-12 title. I think. I might be making that up, but it was something. Whatever it was, they were awesome by the end of the year, and they would have made the NCAA tournament, and no one had that happening in, in January. Not at all. There were a couple of teams this past year that totally surprised us in late going to the season. UCLA came back from the dead. Providence and Ed Cooley, of course, they just found a way to put up six straight wins, including a win at, at Villanova. That was an exceptional run. It just shows you when you're taking 68 teams that – you're in a situation always where your season, even if it's early January, you can still turn the ship around if you can find yourselves. But I want to transition. I just brought up Providence, and not too far down the road, Dan Hurley has UConn going. 
they have had one hell of a summer. On the recruiting trail line, they've gotten a point guard in Rasul Diggins. They've gotten a shooting guard in Jordan Hawkins. And just today, as we tape on August the 10th, Samson Johnson, a center from the Patrick School, Adama Sonogo, a 2020 commit, reclassified. He's from the Patrick School, both from New Jersey. Danny Hurley has a trio of four-star recruits for 2021, and he's about to welcome in a freshman class that's top 25 in the country. What do you make of the Huskies, and are they ready to contend near the top of the Big East? I don't know if, it, if it's going to happen this year, mostly because I think Villanova is just a cut above everybody else in the league, and then Creighton is probably the second-best team in that conference, and it's not really all that close. But if you were to tell me that UConn ends up being a team that goes like 13-5 and five or 15-5 and five or whatever it is in the Big East, they finish like third or fourth in the league. They make the NCAA tournament. James Booknight develops into a first-team All-Big East player, maybe an All-American caliber player, maybe a lottery pick caliber player. Like, none of that would surprise me. Now, there's a couple things that are concerning. One, I don't know how healthy a cook a cook is going to be. He's a guy that kind of relies on his athleticism and his explosiveness. And when you, when you tear your Achilles – like that's what gets taken away is your athleticism and your explosiveness. So um, he's the kind of like defensive presence and defensive playmaker that is so valuable in the middle for what Danny Hurley wants to do. Uh, so I'm not 100% convinced like that this is going to be a great team, but I think that they should be in the NCAA tournament. Like I, I think that if they miss the NCAA tournament, that we can say that Danny Hurley had a really disappointing year. And then we can start questioning like when are the wins going to start coming? But I do think they're going to get to the tournament. I think that there's a real chance that they play much of the year in the top 25. And, like, the momentum for the program moving forward, the thing that I love about it is that Hurley's not really getting, like, surefire one-and-done guys. He's getting guys that are going to be in the program for two or three years. You know, I made this point last year about Memphis and their recruiting class. Like, everyone wanted to talk about James Wiseman. And everyone wanted to talk about Precious Achua. But the best thing that Penny Hardaway did was he had four guys that you could build a program around and you could grow a program around. Lester Quinones, DJ Jeffries, uh, Damian Ball. Like those guys are going to be around, uh, Boogie Ellis, those guys are going to be around for a couple of years. And you can start to develop a program and an identity and build through that. And I think that getting James Booknight is going to help you do that this season for UConn. I think getting guys like Andre Jackson, and you mentioned the Donald Sonogo and this whole class they got coming in for 2021 and Jalen Gaffney, like these are the guys that you can build a core around. You can start developing an identity. And then, you know, you kind of add on with pieces. Like they got RJ Cole coming in to kind of fill a role as yeah. point guard and you can kind of get grad transfers and, and red shirts. And they got the kid from Rhode Island, Tyrese Martin, uh, that's going to be sitting out. So you can, you can kind of build and fill in the gaps when you have the, that core. But to me, if you look at the most successful programs in college basketball, whether it's Villanova or Baylor or Gonzaga or Virginia or any one of that ilk, Michigan State, you kind of get, you get development, right? You get players growing over the course of two, three, four years. You get guys that can be NBA players, but that need a little bit of seasoning with the, when they get to college. You get guys that understand what their programs are asking, asking them for. Like Jay Wright has built a role player factory at Villanova because everyone that goes there understands that 
you go there, he teaches you how to be a well-rounded player. He teaches you how to be positionless offensively because, you know, he has his point guards posting up and his big guys shooting three. They love to invert the offense. They don't care about switching into bad matchups. Like, you're going to see Colin Gillespie guarding guys in the post next year. And while, like, he's not going to be blocking shots, but it's not like it's going to be easy to back that dude down. You know, he's tough. He's strong. He's going to fight. And I'm not saying that I think Colin Gillespie is going to be an NBA player, but it, I, I have him as a second-team All-American. And if you would have told me, when he came in as a freshman, that Colin Gillespie would be a second-team All-American, I would have slapped myself in the face in 2017. So I, I think that just kind of tells you, like, like what happens when you go to Villanova and you just develop and you grow. And I, I can see that kind of happening at UConn. They're, they're, obviously, they're not going to play the same way because, like, what Danny Hurley wants to do and what Jay Wright wants to do are, like, totally different things. But I, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, he, he's, he's oh. built – program and a culture and a place where he can get good players with NBA potential to come in and grow into that potential. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and I think with Villanova, I'm looking at a guy right now, the Suns are 6-0 in the bubble. Mm -hmm. Devin Booker's made all the big shots. Who picks up the biggest defensive assignment? It's a guy that wasn't the best college player on Villanova, at least in people's minds, never won the player of the year award, but he's one hell of a defender, two-way player. That's Mikhail Bridges. So they had 18 points in the bubble and picks up whoever the Suns opposing team's best player is, their biggest assignment. That's the kind of players that Jay Wright has just churned out. And we talk about point guard you. Well, they kind of developed into wing you with Josh Hart, with Mikhail Bridges, and now Sadiq Bey is going to likely be a top 15 pick. Uh, it would look like that. A great year for the Bucs. Like, he really broke out. It, it, it's amazing what yeah. he's been able to do and just, like, getting guys you know, you know the big thing with him and, and I talked with him about this and I think it was 2018 I talked to Jay about it and like the big thing for them was I don't know if you remember John but from like 2010 to 2012 after the Villanova made the final four they went out and they recruited a bunch of like top 15 top 20 players that never panned out there was a year where they went 13 and 19 and like there were there were rumblings that Jay Wright like might be on the hot seat like, I don't think that there was ever, like, he ever got to the point where he was in danger of actually getting fired. But there were people being like, yeah, you know what, maybe you don't have the right guy in this situation. And what he did was he completely revamped the way that he identified a guy that fit into their culture and fit into their program. He wanted guys that were okay if they had to register a year. He wanted guys that were okay if they had to sit out. He wanted guys that weren't going to transfer out of the program just because they had one back season. And, you know, you're kind of seeing that now. Like, Dante DiVincenzo was a redshirt. I know he was injured, but he was a redshirt. Mikhail Bridges was a redshirt freshman, right? You had guys coming in. Eric Pascal was a, a transfer sat out of year. He ended up uh, being – he was drafted, what, by the Warriors, right? Like, I think he yeah, played – Yeah, by the Warriors, yep. Amari Spellman came in redshirt a year and ended up being a first-round pick. Like, he, he's identified guys that their personality – really fits in with what the Villanova culture is. And I think that that is just as important as finding players that are talented. All right, let's turn to the NBA draft. How do you see the first three or four picks going? <laughs> I mean, it's all going to depend on who gets those picks, right? Like this is the uh, one. Of course. It's, it's the one year where there's, you know, normally there's like a Zion Williamson where everyone was like, you have to get that guy number one. He's this unbelievable prospect. And, and some years there's a Zion Williamson and a John Morant where everybody in the world knows who's going to end up being the top two picks in the NBA draft. This year, like, I could talk myself into Anthony Edwards being the best prospect. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Let me 
Well, you need a gla- you need a drink of water when you think about this draft class. I mean, that's yeah. a tough question to ask of who is going to be the three or four. Yeah, there hasn't been a lottery yet, but it just shows you. This is – I saw you wrote about Obi Toppin last week. Like, there's things with each guy that you could talk yourself in for the right reasons, but you could also say, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. there's a lot of guys that have question marks. There aren't a lot of guys that, that you can look at and say, okay, he's got star potential. I can talk myself into Anthony Edwards figuring it out when he gets to the NBA. I can talk myself into the idea that uh, his 29% shooting had everything to do with his shot selection and a lot to do with the fact that he played on a Georgia team that had no floor spacing. And he got frustrated and he didn't want to deal with having to drive into crowds, so he settled for tough jumpers. But – there's also a story where you tell yourself in context, part of the reason why he took all those tough jumpers, part of the reason why defense were able to collapse on him is because they knew he wasn't going to make the right pass kind of a deal. So it's like that with a lot of these guys, right? And it's like that with um, James Wiseman as well. Like, are you going to trust the kid that ended up quitting on his team halfway through the season, right? I know that there were kind of mitigating circumstances there, and I know why it happened, but there were questions about James Wiseman's competitiveness when he was coming out of high school and he didn't help that fact by leaving his team halfway through a suspension so um, there, every player in this draft has question marks Lamelo ball probably has the highest ceiling of anybody in this draft he shoots with two he shoots a two-handed push shot Fanta, he shoots like this and i don't know people listening to this i don't know if you can see me but I, like he shoots like he's a a six-year-old kid and um he's a terrific passer right he has the he he he's legitimately like a basketball genius. The way that he can read the floor and the passes that he can make, but he doesn't tr- even try to defend, right? Like there were times I watched every game that he played in Australia this past year, and I, I swear, man, there were like five clips that I found of him when he's supposed to be tagging a, a roller, right? He's supposed to be in help side, and he's just standing there, staring off into the distance, wiping the bottom of his shoes, not paying any attention at all, and. My question is, if you're drafting him number one, if you're drafting him in the top five, if you're drafting him at all, you have to be able to tell yourself that this thing, that was just the, because there was no, uh, no one to hold him accountable. That was just because, uh, you know, he didn't really buy into what they were trying to do. Like, he didn't love it. He was just there in Australia to get paid because he couldn't play in college. So once we get him into our organization, we have the coaching, we can hold him accountable. We have veterans, this, that, and the third. But it's still like a leap of faith to say a kid that didn't care about playing defense that cannot shoot is going to come in and figure out how to shoot and start caring about playing defense. I'm going to tell you who I think won't be top three or four, but that I like a lot in this draft. Devin Vassell. Florida State. State. Yeah. Yeah. Really good defender. Really good shooter. Like the thing about those Florida State guys is they just know how to guard. They're tough. They're going to play hard. And when you can get a guy that is 6'6 with a whatever wingspan that shot 42% from three, that, I mean, that's like your prototype 3 and D wing. Now, you draft him knowing that like he's going to be a role player. Like, he's basically right. the Mikhail Bridges, right, more or less. Like, they're obviously not the same player, but, like, you're drafting him for that role. So you got to understand that you know, he's probably at best going to be, like, your your fifth starter maybe somebody coming off the bench. But if you can draft a guy that, that you know is going to play a job, like the guy that I love in this draft more than I think anybody else is Xavier Tillman. And that's because, one, he's incredibly smart. Two, he's a leader and he's carried himself as a professional 
every day that he's been on that Michigan State campus. Like, he's got two kids. He's married with a three-year-old and a, and a six-month-old that was born in February of this year. He understands what it takes to kind of be mature and carry yourself as a pro. He's also a terrific defender. Yeah. He's a terrific passer. He's not a great shooter, but he's the kind of guy where he's going to be able to switch ball screens. He's going to be able to guard three, four, five, right? He's going to be able to be that short roller that makes the passes. Uh, if you're on a ball screen and someone doubles the ball handler, he can make those Draymond Green passes in those four on three scenarios. Like you can envision the role that he plays in the NBA. Now you have to accept that you're getting a guy that is only ever going to play a role, but he's also going to be in the league for a decade. So I just, if you can get that at the late first round in this year's draft, I love it. Let's uh, go a little bit off the NBA draft, off just regular X's and O's of college basketball and the basic storylines here. Let's have some fun with Rob Dowster, find him at the rebound. You get one game, one night to watch any affair in college basketball, any matchup. What is the game that you're going to? You mean any um, team? You can pick any matchup to go to. Yep, any two teams. So is it this year or any two teams in the history of the sport? In the history – if it's a rivalry matchup, if it's a game that, that sticks close to you, if it's two teams that stick close to you, maybe you could pick two all-time teams. Um, I would love to have been at the game in 2012 when North Carolina played Kentucky – in Rupp when Anthony Davis blocked John Henson's shot yes. as the, the buzzer-beating walk-off block. And I would love, love, love to have had those two teams play again for the national title in, uh, in where was that, New Orleans? Yeah. That would have been unbelievable. I think that those were clearly the two best teams that season. Obviously, uh, Kendall Marshall breaking his wrist, it couldn't have happened. But if I could have seen – one, seen that game happen – and the two, seeing the rematch happen in the national title game when you got Anthony Davis and Michael Kidd Gilchrist and John Calipari going up against Kendall Marshall and all these guys at, uh, at, at North Carolina and Roy Wood. Like, I, man, that would have been fun. Kentucky, North Carolina in the title game on Bourbon Street. Woo-hoo. Does it get better than that, Fanta? It doesn't. And the post-game activities wouldn't get much better either on Bourbon Street after <laughs> national title game after the work's all done. Uh, let's look in the coaching realm. One current coach here. I'm really intrigued to hear this. You've got to pick one coach to get you a win. Who are you picking? In, in one one game. One game. Not a guy that's going to build a program. Ooh, that's a good question. One single game. You know, this is a little bit off the board. I'm going to go with Rick Patino still. Wow. Rick Patino. I think that he, he's – incredible basketball mind and I know that that's probably the kind of thing that's going to be a little bit controversial but that dude knows what it takes to go out and get a win I think that his NCAA tournament record does not get the level of respect that it deserves in terms of the teams that he's had and the runs that they made so I'm 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 going with Rick Pitino I know that that's off the board but he's the guy that I think is the best in terms of you know I don't think that you can just give uh, Tony Bennett any team and trust that team to be able to play the pack line and be as disciplined as it needs them to be offensively. I don't think that you can give Chris Beard any team and expect them to be able to play like that no middle defense and play with the kind of toughness and togetherness that we see out of these Texas tech teams. Right. Um, Bill self is like, you probably got to put him in the conversation and, and, 
know, Tom Izzo is probably in that conversation as well. But for me, like just in terms of basketball IQ and the ability to like develop a game plan for a, a single game, I'm going, I'm going Rick Patino, even though he's like 78 years old now. Do you think he's one and done at Iona? No. Do you think this is his last stop? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I think that it depends on the punishment that he ends up getting this year um, and how much it sticks to him and then also the success that he ends up having at Iona. But if you think about it, I think he's at, like I said, 70. I think he's actually 74 years old. Um, I might be making that up. But whatever it is, like he does not have a lot of years left. And if you are like, like running a high major basketball program. He's only 67. 67. He's only six. Oh, okay. So that changes things. Um, yeah, I'm going to say that he, he ends up getting another job after Iowa. I think that someone is going to come along and offer him a high major gig, and he's going to take it. It's going to be fascinating. I got to tell you, that Heinz Athletic Center where Iona plays, mm-hmm. they will have never had a press row. Well, we, we probably aren't. Rick Pitino is going to return to college basketball. Nobody's going to be in the building to see it. I haven't even thought about that until now. Game for us. We're not going to be able to go see Rich, Rick Pitino coach if it happens, if it happens. The tragic reality of that is just it's 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 right here. It's just, That's it. You you did it with press row. I did it with the rack. It just uh, it's the worst. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's funny. Like I was having this conversation with someone the other day, and this is kind of going back to what we started off with. And it's it not, wasn't Jeff Goodman, was it? No, it wasn't. I I try to talk to him as little <laughs> as humanly possible. Um, no, but it, it's like if if college sports don't happen this year, we're not losing college sports that we know of, right? Like for college football, you're not getting the tailgating this year. It's not going to happen. You're not getting the bands when you go to the fields and you go to the uh, stadiums. Like that's not going to happen. You're not getting that unbelievable experience of going and being with a hundred thousand other people, literally a hundred thousand other people and watching your favorite football team play. Like that, that experience is not happening. So that's not what we're losing. What we're losing is the ability to watch these kids on TV, make money, for the athletic department so that they can fund whatever, like the lake house for the athletic director kind of a deal, right? So it's not like we're losing what we love about college sports. And I think, I I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here when I say that the best thing, the, the reason why people love college sports is it has as much to do with the environment and the atmosphere and the experience as it does the level of play. Because if we're calling a spade a spade, like college basketball, there are times where it can be hard to watch. College football, there are times where it can be hard to watch. Like there are some bad teams out there and there are some bad plays that they're made. And, you know, it's everything that you would expect. 19 and 20 and 20 year old kids, like they're going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. The reason why we love it is because you go to Cameron Indoor Stadium and you sit on press row and you have all of these people leaning over you and you, you can't wear a white shirt. Otherwise it's going to get stained because all of these shirtless guys with painted chests are literally laying on your back as you're sitting there trying to type. It's about going to Fog Allen Fieldhouse and hearing rock jock KU when you're there, right? It's about going to all of these. It's about going to Wisconsin football and like the jump around experience. Yes. Like, that's what makes college sports what it is. It's the experience. It's not, what is happening on the field and or on the court and like no matter what happens like you're not getting that this year so it's why I've kind of like it'll suck and it probably means I'm going to be unemployed for longer than I'm uh, like already would be if it doesn't happen but it's not going to be like 
that devastating to me because we're not going to get the stuff that makes it great. Does that make sense? Rob, could not have said it better myself. And my heart breaks for these kids. They don't get, you don't get the four-year experience ever again. There's not a four years like this for high school athletes and college athletes. These are the days you look back on, you think about, you remember forever. You have friends forever from these very days. And for these kids to not have that, it breaks my heart. It really does. And I will say this, in the midst of all the tweets and all the reporting and all the stuff that's going on right now on social media and the internet, I, I have said to myself, uh, I'm not going to give an, a, a huge opinion on this because right now you give an opinion and there's people with picket, with uh, lighted torches ready to go at you no matter which way you're coming at it from. That's just 2020 in a nutshell. But what can be said, what we can all agree with, uh, on with is this. This is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for these kids. We talk about mental health in our world. It has to affect that. It's concerning. It's tough. And, and hopefully, uh, we know it's going to pass, but hopefully we can all try to do as much as possible to help that cause every day because for wear those kids, just wear, wear your mask. It's not that bad. No. I, I do it every day. It's no. really not that bad to get it done. It's, it's really not that bad, I promise. Yeah, wear, I, I got mine right here. I got mine right here. Wear it, folks, because I want to see Cameron Indoor Stadium. I want to see Rock Chalk. I want to see Enter Sandman at Virginia Tech. I want to see Jump Around in Wisconsin on a Saturday night and Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreit going crazy. I want to see Rob Dowster at a college basketball game. Wear your damn mask. Because I want to see Rick Pitino coach. I want to see Rick Pitino coach. I want to see Rick Pitino coaching. Gosh damn it, I want to enjoy a pork roll egg and cheese. I'll even eat the egg in New Jersey before Seton Hall and Rutgers. That's what we want. And that's what we got. And that's why you should hire Rob Dalster. Hashtag hire Rob. He's at R-O-B-D-A-U-S-T-E-R. Follow him on Twitter and follow him at The Rebound. Rob Dalster, that's how you go out. Another episode of Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is in the books. Thanks again to Rob Dalster for spending some time with us. Thanks also to our producer, Mike Lieber, as well as Bruce Bernstein for all of their help. Tom Phillip edits the show. Welcome, Tom, to our Pure Hoops family. We always appreciate his contributions. You can check out our other Pure Hoops media shows from Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. They've been dropping knowledge on the NBA each Wednesday. Each Thursday, our friend Monica McNutt and the new edition King McClure drop by with buckets, boards, and blocks. Every Friday, it's the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Mike Wise Show drops each Monday. Our friend Bruce Bernstein, he was in for Mike this week. Check that out. And we'll be back every Tuesday with Full Court Press. Check out our shows. Download them. Rate, review them. But most of all, enjoy. We'll see you next week on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. And remember, wear that mask and stay safe. Stay healthy. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.